name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome to the Meeting of Catholic. This is Timothy S. Flanders. I'm joined today by Chris Plants. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing amazing, man. I'm excited to be here. Excellent, brother. We're happy to have you on again. Today we're talking about ascending his throne, the kingship of Christ, as the essence of the gospel. We yeah. talk a lot. If you read the New Testament, read the epistles of St. Paul, you read that there's something that he's concerned about all the time, and that's the gospel. Yeah, I think that uh, we don't really talk much about the gospel. Uh, it might be a strange concept to some, I think. Um, to many Catholics, I think. Uh, I mean, we're shame on us. We don't we don't evangelize. Uh, we don't talk about the gospel. Um, I, and I, I a lot of can't remember even, even remember the last time I even heard a priest talking about just the gospel. Right. Yeah. I mean. You, you're you're were you were you cradle Catholic, Chris? I can't remember. Yeah, I was a cradle okay. Catholic, but I went to Catholic school, so I fell away. Um, and right. and how then get, how did you get into the gospel? You're so into the gospel, evangelism. Actually, yeah, actually, that's it, a super interesting and relevant question to to actually what we're going to talk about today. Because uh, I was thinking about telling this story, but I was like, oh, I'll just leave it. But when I went to college, uh, I, I went to an evangelical Christian school in Santa Barbara, and uh, I didn't. I get went there because they gave me a baseball scholarship, and um, I wasn't going there because it was like Christian or Protestant or anything like that. Um, but uh, but I ended up having my reversion there. A bunch of guys on the baseball team sort of witnessed to me, and they were like, you know, you got to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved and all that stuff. And so I was. That's sort of how I have my reversion. Um, but what's interesting is when I was there, the first theological controversy that I was ever sort of initiated into was, or ever heard about, or was involved in, I wasn't even really involved in it. It was just going on at the campus that I was on is Protestants were arguing over the Lordship controversy. I don't know if you're aware, are you aware of the Lordship controversy? Is that, is that like Kuiper? I don't know. Yeah, don't Abraham. Know. Tell me. Yeah, Abraham. Yeah. No. Th so Protestants were arguing about, you know, you you have in, um, uh, what is it? Romans 10, like eight or nine, Romans eight, Romans 10, nine, maybe, where Paul says, you know, unless you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, you cannot be saved. Or if you confess Jesus, if you confess with on your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you're saved. Mm -hmm. So the question was, you know, they all agree that we're saved by faith alone, which is wrong. We know that. But but they all think, you know, we're saved by faith alone. But then what does that really involve? And that was the controversy where you have Paul saying things like you have to confess Jesus as Lord. But Protestants sort of don't have a framework to make sense of that because it's all about just souls going to heaven when they die. So why does it really matter if he's forgiven us from our sins so that we can escape this world and go to another? Why do we have to confess Jesus as Lord? Um, and so they didn't really have a framework. So some were saying you don't really have to confess Jesus as Lord, just Savior. And some were saying, well, Paul says it, so we have to make sense of it. So we have to at least confess it. And obviously there, there's a lot more to, to the debate, but I was sort of as a, as a 
I wasn't really Catholic yet. I was probably still in the Calvinist waters, but I never really gave into the Calvinism. Eventually came back to the church, but I was like, what is going on? Like, why you resisted we- the irresistible grace. Good for yeah. you. <laughs> no, I know. The double predestination scared me to death. I was oh. like, what? Oh, I was like, such an awful heresy. I hate it. <laughs> dude, it's the worst. It's the re- worst. I'm like, this is Muhammad. This is like Islam yeah. is what yes. this is. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really, it was Terrible. really scary. And even as like someone who wasn't that sophisticated, I wasn't a sophisticated theologian. I just balked at it. Like, man, my, I guess my Catholic senses deep down were like, yeah. that wasn't right. But <laughs> um, so that's where, then the question was like, you know, um, what is, what is the gospel? What, it, why is this lordship thing so sent? I mean, if you read Paul, it's like the thing for, for the entire gospel you have the proclamation of the kingdom, especially in Matthew's gospel, but also in the other gospels. And then all of a sudden it comes, it comes out into the epistles as Jesus Christ is Lord of Lord, King of Kings. And it's everywhere. And so that's where I started initially thinking about this, but, um, but then when I got into the Catholic church, I realized like Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom and what he left us was the church. And it's because the kingdom is the church. And you see this with the Pope having the keys of the prime minister in the Old Testament and the Davidic kingdom being fulfilled in the Catholic church explicitly. So that structure is there and that fulfillment has been accomplished in the church. So yeah. that's where I started. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So let's 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 bring it back because that, that brings up another important piece is that what our Lord is always talking about is the kingdom of heaven. That's and, right. And is so it's a kingdom, it's a political reality. Um, so let's bring it back to the first century. Can you walk us through why do you think that the kingship of Christ is the essence of the gospel? Go. So I actually think the New Testament is not the best place to start, actually. I think it's the Old Testament. So, so if we start in the New Testament, then we start to get things wrong. Um, for example, um, we can easily think of the kingdom that Jesus is preaching is not a political one, um, that it's merely a spiritual one, which Luther and Calvin had sort of proposed and many Protestants and, and Catholics, in, including Catholics today, I think it's a spiritual kingdom. We can also think, though, that when we say kingdom of heaven, which is in Matthew's gospel, so the other three gospels say kingdom of God. But Matthew has changed it to kingdom of heaven. And there's not a contradiction. It, there's a reason why Matthew is saying that. The reason It's the reason why he's saying kingdom of heaven um, in his gospel. But to leave that aside for now. So we need the Old Testament for context. And there are different ways. There, there are two different ways that I think we could go about this. We could dive into the New Testament and say, let's gather all the data from the New Testament. And then let's try to draw a conclusion. Or we be we could even be bolder than that and say, let's try to go above the old and new testaments and try to figure out what the 30,000 foot picture is. Because the the question, the question that we need to, to figure out is what is the problem to which Jesus is the solution? So what, what is the problem? And the problem is not just sin. That's a major problem that he came to solve, but there could be actually a deeper and darker problem that Jesus came to solve than sin. And that sounds crazy at first, but I think that not just personal sin, the big problem is the reign of Satan. That's key. That is extremely key. So if we go all the way back to Genesis, every time he gets in a controversy, Jesus always goes back to those opening chapters in Genesis. And it's good that we start there. So 
let me say a few things about Genesis and then I'll go, I'll try to make quickly to the new Testament. But when we, when we open the first pages of the Bible, we see the creator, God creating the universe. And then all of a sudden, everything, when he's, when he's going through everything, he sort of comes to a halt. Everything slows down when he creates these things called humans and he makes them in his image and likeness. Now, uh, image and likeness does not merely mean that we have an intellect and will. And we're distinct, therefore, from the creatures, you know, like John Paul II had pointed out, we have intellect and will, and therefore we can sort of, we in naming the other animals, we're distinct from the other animals and so on and so forth. And he's right there. And that's the classical sort of tradition. But there's also the very fact that image and likeness in that ancient Near Eastern context means um, kingship. And God has sent, God has put his images um, on the earth in the Garden of Eden to rule on earth as he is in heaven. Okay. So that's key. So humans have been placed on earth to rule, to have dominion, as we read in the opening chapters, to have dominion over creation, to rule over creation. And in the ancient Aries, kings were always seen as being, being in the image and likeness of a God. Okay. And um, you also have the the sort of kingship, kinship language, where they're the sons of God. You also see this in, in, in the Roman emperors as well. But um, what, what, what the scriptures are telling us is that man has been created in the image and likeness of God. And that's why when we get to Exodus, they're not allowed to bow down to images and likenesses. Icon, idol is the same word for image and likeness there. So you're not allowed to bow down to idols because God has already made idols. He's already made images of himself. And that's not the birds or the fish or the other things that have their respective dominions. You are the image of God. Okay, so if his images are bound down to other images, it doesn't make much sense. So we represent, so here's the key thing. Our original vocation was a, it was a royal vocation. And so this is why Paul sees himself eventually, he'll see himself as an ambassador for Christ Jesus, the king. Why does he think of himself as an ambassador? Because, because the new Adam has come. I'm getting ahead of myself here, but let me, let me actually, before I say that, say this. So our, our original vocation was a royal vocation to rule on earth as God reigns in heaven. That's the key image. That's the, that's the key vocation. Now, the problem is that his image bearers also had a military vocation. And, and I point this out in my recent book that's going to come out in a few weeks. The, the woman, the word for helper there is, not, is, is ezer. And helper is a really low-grade translation. The word is literally a military ally. Mm-hmm. So God has given to man as, as, as a way to fulfill his royal vocation and a military ally, the woman, and their job is to fence off the garden. Literally, the word for garden, they're gone. It just means to protect. They are to protect the garden from any evil entering into it. And they fail in their task. The case could be made that Adam failed in allowing the, the, the serpent into the garden. Okay, so with all that being said, what then happens next? We all know the story about Eve and Adam and eating the apple and everything. But what, what the picture we get as the scriptures go on is that, and Jesus points out, the New Testament points out over 20 times, is that what happened was the royal vocation that we had was handed over to the dark Lord. Okay, so now the problem is not merely just sin. The problem is the dark Lord now reigns on earth. Okay, so what God is going to do through the woman is he's going to defeat. Remember, the very first messianic uh, prophecy and the very first promise is the defeat of the dark Lord. Okay, the crushing of his head. So 
So all of this is in Paul's mind. It's in everybody in the New Testament who's writing. It's in their mind that the ultimate thing that has to be done is the crushing of the head of Satan. Okay. Now, as we, so, so right now, the condition that the world is in is it's under the dark Lord. It's under the reign of the dark powers. Okay. The serpent species. And so God has to then now create a new representative, a new image bearer. And if now, you're cat. Let me yeah. cut in here. Can you explain at, at at the time of our Lord? Can you explain why why is the reign of the Dark Lord not merely spiritual? We talked that's, about that. That's that's key. That that see that is insanely key. That is because we, we talk about. I mean, his original sin. I mean, man is is under the dominion of Satan. He's under sin. But you're you're saying that the sin is not only a personal spiritual. Okay. sin but it's yes. also a sin in terms of one's kingship can you explain how that's political in terms of i mean we've got an actual davidic king who's an actual flesh and blood king who's a political reality how does that all relate in terms of the politics oh dude see that's the key because what the ancient oracle said the the most ancient oracle of the of the coming of the messiah said is there are two seeds Okay. And the two seeds are going to battle it out. There's one seed that belongs to the woman. Okay. There's another, the promised seed that will crush the seed of the serpent. Then there's the serpent and his seed. And it's not just demons because what we see is the picture we get is Cain and Abel are two different seeds, right? And then the promised seed reemerges with Seth. And then finally we go down, down through, down the, the line and we get to Genesis 12 and Abraham shows up on the scene. Abraham shows up on the scene precisely as the answer to the problem of sin in Genesis 3. That through him, he is going to, through his family, he's going to provide the promised seed, the promised snake head crushing seed. Okay. So now we have two seeds. And you see this when we get to the book of Exodus, that there are two seeds. There's the seed of the dark Lord, which is represented in, who's the seed of the dark Lord? Pharaoh himself. And Pharaoh's seed will be crushed, right? Through the Passover. This is why the Passover was chosen by Jesus to be the feast of his crucifixion. Because ultimately he's going to crush, he's going to, he's going to bring an end to the serpent in his seed. But Mel Gibson did a good job with that in the, with the, the dark Lord holding a seed. But you also have the, the promised seed, which is Abraham's family. Now, by the time you get to the end of Abraham, everybody, or the end of Genesis, you get to this point where everybody's focusing on Joseph, but they forget what Jacob had done on his deathbed. And he goes, he's going through at the end, he's going through to bless all of his kids. Judah. His, his, yes, that's right. Because, <laughs> because of the first three had failed in idolatry and other stuff. He goes to Judah and he says, what does he say to Judah though? He says, behold, the scepter will uh. never depart from your hand. He doesn't say, behold, I am going to rescue everybody so we can go to an abstract platonic world called heaven and we can allow this world to just be corrupted and 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 fall apart. No, he says the scepter will come <clears throat> through your seed, your Judah seed. And then later we get through the we're going to keep going here. But no, the, let me let off. me just stop here because that's a that's a great way to wrap up Genesis, because I, I never understood Genesis until I heard some of the commentaries from St. Ephraim and how it's all about the two different. That's why the generations are so important. Because it's oh, all about the, the 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 all the generations of Cain and what he did and his sons and his sons and their whole group is the evil seed and their generations. Whereas and then they're battling it out physically and spiritually with the good seed, the righteous seed, 
And I love how you wrap That's it right. up, how Genesis really wraps up with Judah being giving this uh, royal prophecy. That's right. here. It's great. Right. So, so key here is the crushing of the head comes with this prophecy of royal dominion. So what's going to happen is when, when this promised seed comes, he is not, it's not going to be about saying, okay, Satan, you can have this world and I'm going to get everybody and save them so we can go to another world where it's just abstract forms and mathematical objects or something. No, the, the point is, is that the snake crushing seed is going to have a scepter because his, his dominion is going to come over all the nations. So, so once you, once you get that, that it's not about going to a place called the kingdom of heaven, but it's about the kingdom of heaven coming to earth as in heaven, which is what we say in the, our father, which we're going to wrap up with eventually the, our father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done where on earth as in heaven. That is really key. Um, but to back up when we get to eventually there's a, there's one seed within Judah, um, who's going to carry the promise forward. And that's David. Okay. So that's where we get second Samuel seven, the promise that the scepter will never leave David and there will be an everlasting kingdom and so on and so forth. But it's a political kingdom guys. And the point that's really, that's really important because when you get to the new Testament, um, the, the, when Jesus starts proclaiming the kingdom, everybody, and you can see this with the John the Baptist and the disciples and everybody, everybody assumes that it's a political kingdom. Now, this is where I break off a little bit from the main, maybe, maybe some mainstream uh, new Catholic, faithful Catholic New Testament scholars is that it is a political kingdom that he's establishing, but it looks like the church. The church has a monarch. The church has canon law. You're bound to canon law. You're subject to a kingdom. Where and and when we when we dive into say the Gospel of Matthew, these things for Catholics ought to make more sense than they would for say another Christian tradition, Christian tradition, which is uh, a Protestants basically, which is that God's kingdom is all about coming to earth as in heaven, and therefore Catholics ought to pray the Our Father differently because we believe that God has given that power to the Pope, because. Uh, Jesus says, pray that the kingdom will come on earth and heaven. And then he gives the power to bind on earth, the things of heaven to the P to Peter and the bishops. And so the bishops, the church is really the, the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven. And there's much more that I could say about that. But what happens in the gospel is you have the proclamation of the kingdom, but then you have the, the, the central point, which is the, the Paschal mystery. And this is where sort of um, Catholics need to uh, make sure we get the formula correct. Because because if I say Paschal mystery, most people, well, a lot of people will say the uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. But many Catholics will say, we're, there's like a crusade happening right now. We're like, hey, wait, wait, wait. It's the passion, death and resurrection, you know? And so it's like, it's all three of those things. But there's the final crusade that Catholics need to launch, which is to get the full formula correct, which it's not just the passion, death, and resurrection. It's what? The passion, death, resurrection. And as the 92 catechism made so clear, Ratzinger and JP2 made this clear, the ascension is the climax of all of it. The Paschal mystery comes into fruition with the crowning of Jesus as the new Adam, the perfect image of the father, the new Adam launching his kingdom. All authority has now been given to him as Jesus. Remember what Jesus says, <clears throat> all authority on earth has been given to me. 
which is in other words of saying the dark Lord has been dethroned. The new Adam has been established at God's right hand in fulfillment of Daniel seven. And therefore my kingdom is my kingdom, my followers, their vocation is to have their vocations renewed to be in the image. Remember Paul says we're being transformed into the image of Christ. And in doing that, we proclaim to the world that the dark Lord has been dethroned and Jesus Christ has all authority on earth, period. No one has it but him, period. And that comes through the church and through baptized Catholics who are in political office and so on and so forth. But um, but back to your point though, the the um where you you might people might say, Well, how is the dark lord reigning? Well, the dark lord's reigning through Babylon, well, Assyria, then Babylon then through Persia, then Greece, and then Rome, right? And so Rome becomes this fifth kingdom. Four and the next, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so the, the, exactly. And so the next kingdom that is supposed to succeed the fourth beast, destroy it, the rock. Um, and I actually think Peter being called the rock might be a reference to Daniel 7. And I'm, I, I've never seen anybody make a case, but I can make the case that the church through the papacy is the rock that comes because in Daniel's prophecy, he sees a rock coming. A, a large rock that knocks down the king, the, the final kingdom, because it doesn't strike the top three. It, it strikes the fourth one, the bottom, the feet of iron and clay, yeah, and that, which is Rome. And so Peter is the rock, I think, the kingdom that is coming to, a, to, to knock down the feet. And then what do you see established right after Rome falls? The Catholic Church for a thousand years, right? And so you have the kingdom of Christ established on earth as in heaven. And it's the fulfillment of the... The, the entire prophecy going all the way back to dethroning the dark Lord in Genesis 3.15. So, but, but the key thing is to remember that the seed of the serpent is really represented in these like world governments, which I know is going to sound super conspiracy theory-ish, but back in the day, Rome was really seen, and you look in the book of Revelation, you can see this, Rome is being presented as being sort of the serpent, the seed of the serpent. The, seed, the dark Lord sort of has these puppet kingdoms, Babylon being one, but now being fulfilled in the reign of Domitian and, and Nero and so on and so forth. So, so this is where the ascension comes in key because everything's sort of ordered, his passion, death, and resurrection are ordered to the ascension. And so the res now the, you can't really understand the resurrection apart from the ascension, because what is the resurrection? The resurrection is the, the launching as Pope, Be Pope Benedict is key. And he's one of the only people that got this because he's the only theologian that was ever doing work on eschatology. Pope Benedict said, we worship and it's in the catechism, the 92, we worship on the eighth day because it's the first day of the new creation, the old creation where Satan is reigned has been dethroned. And so you worship now on the first day in anticipation of the new creation with the new Adam, Jesus reigning and, and, and fulfilling our royal vocations. This is why he's called, you know, G, Paul often refers to him as being in the image of God. It's like, what is this image? And Paul's representing it as a kind of royal image, a royal vocation that Jesus has being in the image and likeness of God. It's the fulfillment of the of, of Adam's original vocation, and Jesus has done that. That's great. Do you, so do you have that? Do you have that uh, passage from the ninety two Catechism? Yeah. So, so I want to point out before you do that, though, in in the offertory prayers at the Latin Mass, at the end of the offertory, the Shushipe Sancta Trinitas prayer, it says. We are they're offering the mass in memory of the passion, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's and right. So there is that right in there in the in the Latin Mass. Now, but yeah, the, you got that. Yeah, I do have that. But I should also say the Latin Mass. If if you were a Roman citizen had no idea about Catholicism and you went into a Latin Mass as St. Peter's Basilica, you would think that it was the um it, that they were performing the ceremony of the imperial court, uh, the imperial cult that the emperor is being. And so the Lat the Latin Mass sort of emerges as this as the fulfillment of the Daniel seven prophecy because many of the imperial cult elements are sort of brought in and and it's no longer caesar who is king it's re the ancient catholics reworked it around jesus christ that jesus christ has been has been crowned king and so you have you have that element there there's more to say on that but here's the passage from um the 92 catechism what what number is that uh well it's 60 662 and then it's i'm gonna kind of skip around to 664 and then 668 is where i think this thing is gets really good okay. even through 672 sorry uh, there's there's ahead. just a lot but but so 662 begins with and i when i am lifted up from the earth will draw all men to myself now that's a really important um quotation from they're citing John 12 32. Now, what is he when he's lifting up? Is he going to draw all individuals to himself? Um, like like Balthazar had understood. And the answer is when he's lifted up, he's gonna do the Genesis 12, 1 through 3 thing, which is what all individuals? No, all 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 of the different nations are gonna come into one. So this is a side tangent, but let me just put this out there as sort of a marker that the prophets that 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 the reason why Abraham was chosen was so that through him all the the nations would come in and 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 create this one worldwide family. Okay, that's the gospel. Actually, the gospel is how 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 God's going to bring in the Gentiles into His one worldwide family, and this is why in Galatians you have the dispute between. Uh, the dispute between Peter and Paul and Paul's like, you're denying the essence, you know, you're denying the essence of the gospel. And everybody's like, what, what are you talking mm -hmm. about? All he's saying is Gentiles aren't, he's just, he's just not allowed. He's just not eating with Gentiles when the Jews are around. And Paul, you think this is the gospel? Exactly. He, of course he thinks it's the gospel because the gospel is, is, is the Catholic church. You know, I said on Twitter once that Catholic the meaning of Catholic, funny, uh, the meaning of Catholic is the gospel, <laughs> is the gospel because God has, has created the one worldwide family of Abraham in the universal Catholic church. Now, what's interesting about this, this is kind of a side note, but this will be really interesting to think about, which is this dispute between Peter and Paul took place where? It not, not, that's right. Yep. And where do we hear the first time the church is called Catholic? From who? Ignatius, oh, Saint Ignatius. Of, that's right. So <laughs> oh, why is Ignatius him. calling the church Catholic? Well, because he's the bishop of the place where this was the big dispute. This is the big dispute between the two apostles. So if any church is going to get the essence of the gospel, as Paul calls it, it's, it's Ignatius, that the church is universal and therefore fulfills the Genesis 12, 1 through 3 prophecy and therefore fulfills the coming of God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. This is why Protestantism really undermines the gospel because it's only in the church that you have the united one worldwide family of, of, of God in the Catholic church. There's more I can say, but let's keep going to this. He, the, the, now what JP two and Benedict put here is sick. So they cite uh, John 12 32, but then listen to this, the lifting up of Jesus on the cross 
signifies and announces his lifting up by his ascension into heaven and indeed begins it. Okay, so Christ on the cross is already being enthroned. And this is where you he's crowned as he's crowned as king with they're mocking his kingship, but this is what Isaiah said would happen. Isaiah's pro proclaiming that God's kingdom would come on earth as in heaven and then you have the servant psalm where you're like, what does it look like when God's kingdom comes on earth? And then he gives us the servant psalm it's like, oh, he's rejected, he's beaten, he's tortured. You're like, okay, so this is the fulfillment of the kingship of Christ, the the, the kingship of of Yahweh. Jesus Christ, the one priest of the new and eternal covenant entered not into any sanctuary made by human hands, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Okay. Now skipping down a little bit, henceforth, uh, uh, paragraph 663, henceforth Christ is seated at the right hand of the father by the, the father's right hand. We understand the glory and honor of divinity where he who exists as son of God before all ages, indeed as God of being one with the father is seated bodily after he became incarnate and his flesh was glorified. Now here's the kicker. Watch this 664 being seated at the right. The father's right hand signifies, this is so sick. The inauguration of the Messiah's kingdom, the fulfillment of the prophetic uh, of the prophet Daniel's vision concerning the son of man quote, to him, what is the prophecy? Check this. To him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. After this event, the apostles became witnesses of the kingdom that will have no end. So when the apostles are witnesses, what are they witnessing to? They're witnessing to Jesus Kyrios. That's why Paul and Peter went to Rome. They went to Rome, not to just to establish a church, to look Caesar in his face and tell him that he is subject to Jesus Christ. That's, he was not, if they went to Caesar and they're like, hey, you know, believe in Jesus and you can be saved um, and, and, and you can get your sins forgiven and go to heaven. He would have been like, okay, just establish him as one of these other gods that we have, you know, along the line. But no, they went there and I think they told him to his face, Jesus Kyrios. Caesar, Caesar was the one going around saying that he is Lord. And they say, Caesar Kyrios, Kaiser Kyrios. And they tell him to his face, no, you're subject to, you're subject to Christ. Now, uh, before I get on to this next point, let me clear up one difficulty. Okay. So you hear this a lot in, in. Uh, Mark 12, 16 through 17, you have the famous passage where Jesus says, can you bring me a coin? Right. And they're like, do you pay oh, yeah. taxes? Now, most will say, well, there, there's some things that belong to Caesar. Well, let me break it down first. They bring the coin and then Jesus says, you know, whose image is on the coin? And uh, they say, well, Caesar. And he's like, okay, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Now, this passage have been, has been largely misunderstood. What, what is Jesus doing here? Well, he's a Jew, right? And he has a Jewish creation theology in mind when he's doing this. So he says, bring me the coin. And Jesus is saying, whose image is on the coin? And they say, well, Caesar, right? And, it, and he's expecting his Jewish listeners to catch the irony. There's an image that's on the coin. And then there's an image that is on Caesar, and therefore, Caesar is subject to God. If the coin is subject to Caesar, Caesar himself has an image on him. And that coin, Caesar himself, is subject to God. It's a Jewish Genesis 1, 2, 3 way of working out the social kingship of Christ. He's saying that my kingdom's coming 
And I'm the perfect image of God, and therefore I'm going to be enthroned at God's right hand, and so on and so forth. Yeah, the, the question is what what and then we'll get into this in a in a little bit because I'm going to talk about more of the the uh, modern controversies over this because the question is what what does not belong to God? Yeah, See, nothing. Peter, yeah, right. Exactly. Please continue. Yeah, no, that that's key. That's key. You don't even need the G, the Jewish creation theology that he's assuming there to understand it. It's like, well, tell me something that's not, he's creator. So everything's subject to him. Come on. So the key thing though, the key thing is this question, but has his kingdom come now or is it until, or we have to wait for it until the end of the world. Now, when you read Paul, Paul thinks that with the resurrection, the new creation has already emerged, which is why all things are now subject to Christ. And this is picked up by JP2 and Benedict again in look at paragraph 668. And what is the title there? Christ already reigns through the church. That's key. Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Christ's ascension into heaven signifies his participation in his humanity, in God's power and authority. Jesus Christ is Lord. He possesses all power in heaven and on earth. He is far above, and they're citing Ephesians here, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. For the Father has put all things under his feet. Christ is Lord of the cosmos and of history. Uh, in him, human history and indeed all creation are set forth and transcendently fulfilled. Um, there's more that we could say about this. They talk about in in um, the uh, in paragraph 671. You'll see that all things are subject to him. They go on to talk about the new heavens and the the new earth. Um, 672 says before his, his ascension, Christ affirmed that the hour had not yet come for the glorious establishment of me his messianic kingdom awaited by Israel, which according to the prophets was to bring all men, uh, the definitive, uh, all bring to, to, uh, sorry, was to bring all men, uh, the definitive order of justice, peace, and love according to the Lord, the present, blah, blah, blah. So, so we are witnesses. So, so what does this all mean? Our vocations are restored. We are now being remade, as Paul says, in the image of Christ, which means that we, when we go out, when we, when we confess that Jesus is Lord, we're telling the nations. And yes, that's, that includes constitutions and it includes rulers and authorities, if they're monarchs or republics or whatever, that, they are, that all authority has been given to Christ and therefore subject to him. But check this, they're subject to him through... Matthew 16, 19, as Jesus understood it through the church, the binding and loosing of the church. And so the kingship of Christ is not a separate issue. It is the gospel. And more importantly, the gospel has every, has at its core, the, the power that the church has over the nations. So that summarizes a lot. There's a lot more that I could say, but yeah, let me get your initial thoughts. Yeah, and try to beautiful, see if I beautiful. I'm, 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 uh, Basically, the thinking, um, the biggest one of the biggest controversies over the past six years, sixty years, is dignitatis humanae and the the dream of Jacques Maritain and and really the post conciliar popes moving into a sort of embracing the UN, embracing secular democracy, and all this, and embracing basically the separation of church and state. Whereas in the beginning, uh, you have this political reality, you have the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God 
Jesus is Lord, all these political slogans. Everybody at the oh, time, everywhere. knew. everybody knew that this is a political slogan. It's like saying Jesus is president, even yeah. though it's, that's not kind of a crass way of saying it or whatever. Even but, worse than that, because I mean, president elected. So we're just right, talking about right. someone like who is. Saying, getting- it's like saying Jesus is the U.S. Constitution and Jesus is the Declaration of Independent. And Jesus is is the president. Like it's say, like if I ran around preaching that, that would be like similar to what they were preaching back back then. Would you but agree with that? The key, the, but the key though is because Protestants could affirm that the key is the Catholic Church though. Okay, the key yeah. is that the key is that the way the kingdom comes on earth as in heaven is through the binding and loosing of of the papacy. Now, the, now the key though is is the church and state language is is got to be removed out of Catholic minds because many people in our camp that want to see a so called union of church and state using that language is is not helpful. A, medieval Catholics didn't think that way. Medieval Catholics believed that the kingdom of God was the church, and they didn't think that the church was just the bishops and the popes. They saw themselves as participating in the church, that they were to rule the on the nations. They were to they were to rule on earth as in heaven, and they were part of the church. So when we say that the church and state ought to be united, we think that the church is over here. And by church, we mean the bishops and the popes, and they shouldn't have any political authority. And then the states over there. We, we need to think about is the union of clergy and laity, not the union of church and state, the union of clergy and laity, the clergy and laity being united is what will then establish in our, even in a democracy or republic, the kingship of Christ, because you have elected rulers who are, who are not Protestant, they're Catholic, and the Catholics themselves are hopefully, unlike Biden, bound to the church. So see, the problem is not so much the separation of church and state. The problem is a Biden problem, right? Where you have the the clergy and the laity aren't united. Biden's just going and doing whatever he wants. And there's no canonical, there's no canonical penalties at all. And so you basically have this drift away between the clergy and the laity. What needs to happen is the clergy and laity need to be united. So when, when the laity, when the Catholic laity go out there to public office, they can establish the kingship of Christ. And, 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 and implement the church's, the church's moral law and bring about that justice that we, that we've always talked about. And even if it needs to, the, the temporal arm to, 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 to deal with maybe heretics or whatever the case might be, like we see in the middle ages, but the middle ages didn't think in terms of church and state that the, these Catholics believed in the union of clergy and laity that, that, that the, the, the prince was really a deacon appointed by God. He had he had almost a religious vocation because the church the, the church is a clergy and laity. And so the laity have this this, you know, he's been appointed by God, as Paul says in Romans, um, to administer justice and establish the laws of the land, which are the laws of the, the church. Oh, yeah. I hope that so this is a lot coming at people, but it's it's stuff to think about and write down and, and pray about and meditate on. Yeah, this is excellent. Yeah, um, this is the, in my opinion, the central theme. I mean, it's the essence of the gospel, but, but this is, especially since it's the essence of the gospel, I see in history the divisions of Christians hinging on this very question because you have 301, the first Christian country is Armenia. Then you have Rome. Then you have Abyssinia. You've got Persian Christians, which are political enemies of the Romans, but they're in Persia. And you have all these divisions that are happening in the East, which are largely breaking upon uh, the national boundaries and linguistic boundaries. 
and cultural bond. And then you have the Greek and Greek and Latin schism, which is also a political schism, which is dealing with basically Christians chose loyalty to their earthly kingdom over loyalty to the universal Christian kingdom of Christ. That's what I, I, I argue is really at the root of all this division between Catholics and non-Catholics basically. And that, and then that it multiplies in the reformation. Cause then you got every, all these Kings who just exalt themselves into their own realm um, but it, to me, I was, because being pre previously an Eastern Orthodox, it was really when I woke up to this reality and I realized that the papacy alone can claim the allegiance of every nation, not because the Eastern Orthodox cannot, they cannot get above their earthly kingdom mm -hmm. with their, their ecclesiastical structure that they have. They cannot do it. They, they're, they are incapable of calling an ecumenical council or doing anything that's supranatural, national, yeah. you know, and yeah. that's to me that was the crux of the whole issue. And what made me become Catholic largely is is that supranatural national authority, uh, which I think is so central. What you're bringing up here, um, and you see, and you see the big difference here when you compare this with Mohammedanism. And their their idea of kingship and like the caliph, you know what I'm saying? Like the the ummah is a political reality that's following the model of Muhammad, and it is literally a empire which is just expanding, and it should expand through conquest, and it's just one big empire. Whereas the Christian kingdom is a kingdom through the church. I love what you're saying in yeah. terms of it's through the church, it's and that's key. that's what allows it to be multiple nations and multiple see, polities. Exactly. And see, this is why, you know, sometimes the church's enemies understand us better, understand the church better than we do ourselves. Because when the Catholics first came over, what were all the Protestants worried about? They're like, they're going to establish a Catholic kingdom, you know? And we're like, yeah, baby. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, but they understood it. And now, you know, even some Protestants are worried about that because they're like, what happens when Catholics tap into this? What happens when Catholics rediscover, I mean, they don't know it's the gospel, but when they rediscover the gospel and they realize, oh, we're supposed to be establishing God's kingdom on earth as in heaven, you know, what's going to happen to us Protestants or so on and so forth? And that's a side issue. But let me say one thing about Dignitatis Humanae is, and Thomas Pink has pointed that out, and you know, I'm a great defender of Vatican II. It's, I think it's a, you know, brilliant council and so on. I'm going to get roasted again on that. But, but Dignitatis Humanae is really key because- when it comes to coercing people in matters of religion, no other religion, because it's not founded by God, no other religion has that authority. And that's what Dignitatis Humanae was saying. The only religion that, that, can, uh, that can coerce in matters of religion at the state level is the Catholic Church, which sounds super traditional. And that's what Dignitatis Humanae was saying. But because we're, we're Catholics are in exile, we're not in Jerusalem anymore. And that's why it's difficult for many of us who think like we're, we're supposed to be, we're like trying to recover medieval Christendom, but we're not in medieval Christendom, guys. We're in Babylon. It's after, it's post 587, 6 AD or, or BC. We're in Babylon. And so therefore it must look like Esther. You must be advocating for the religious liberty because of, of all, of all, because the only people who can coerce are baptized Catholics at the state level in which you have a confessional state. 
So this is what Leo XIII was saying, having to try to deal with this issue that we no longer have nations. Remember what he says in um, his, his encyclical on the rosary, his most earnest desire is to recover the nations that have been, that have been lost from the church that are no longer under the church's jurisdiction and have, have Catholics sort of faithful Catholics running them. Leo wanted to establish that. But what he said was, you cannot, civil authority cannot do that. It cannot, without the, without a community of baptized, it doesn't have that authority. Only Jesus Christ's church does. And church there means not just Pope and bishops, but laity. The, the Catholic laity have been endowed with this vocation to establish God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. And so that's why, and, and Thomas Pink went on Rules for Retrogrades with um, Dave and, and Tim to show them that this was the underlying interpretation that was given to all the council members. Now, we don't have to get into that, but I just want to, uh, let me recommend to people to go read Thomas Pink's work on this. He, he's at Oxford and he's a traditional faithful Catholic. Go read him on this and he'll show he has all the documentations. And this was, by the way, the teaching of Robert Bellarmine, he says, and Suarez. Suarez said that a state that is not, that is not a community of baptized doesn't have, uh, cannot, does not have the authority to coerce the matters of religion. It doesn't have, it doesn't have any supernatural authority whatsoever, other than what they can discover through the natural law and stuff. So go read Thomas Pink on Suarez and Bellarmine and, and Dignitatis Humanae and so on. Is that his piece at Josias? That one? The, uh, the baptism? Uh, it's, prob it's probably at Josias, but he's also he also has some other articles out there, specifically on Suarez and, and that. But go look up all his work, because he's done a lot of good work on this. In fact, you should probably have him on the show. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I, my understanding is that the... the uh, and this is where we get into the Mohammedanism, because the Mohammedanism, and really every other religion, uses some sort of coercive power in order to spread their religion. Uh, but the coercive power of the church is only with the uh, baptized. The, the yes, church, that's right. The church does not do a coercive power. You should never force someone to be baptized. That, yeah. like, that's what right. Charlemagne did. Those were what Christian rulers did, exactly. abusing their power, because you cannot force someone to freely accept. That's a contradiction, obviously. You can't force someone right. to freely accept baptism. It's, it's a contradiction. But the, when right. you're baptized, you are you are enlisting in the army, you are becoming a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And so since you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you can be coerced in some way, e even in matters of religion. That's right. That's right. Because That's right. you are, so that, in that sense. That's what just, I meant. I didn't, just I didn't for mean the viewers the to understand. Yeah. Um, and that's what makes it so much different than Mohammedanism. And that's why, because the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God through the church is supranatural national i keep on saying natural <laughs> because it's it's international it is not spreading itself by force of arms and these nations right. do not need to fight each other they should uh, the, the scandal of christendom yeah, is really right. the hundred years war and all these different wars of between yeah. christians uh because they don't they don't need to fight each other because they're they're no longer they're in one kingdom now and yeah. all these national loyalties are secondary to the one first citizenship of the kingdom no, that that is absolutely key. I mean, the 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 problem that we have after Genesis three is one of the consequences of sin is human division. So um, Adam opposes Eve, Eve opposes Adam, Cain versus Abel, uh, Lamech versus I mean, it just it's a downward spiral spiral until you lead up and into the Tower of Babel, where at the Tower of Babel, you have the dispersing of the nations and Abraham's family. Ab uh, the promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, one through three 
are the response to the scattering of the nations. This, now, it's only nine verses long, so people skip over it. But the Tower of Babel incident is probably one of the key texts in understanding the Bible because the Tower of Babel happens. Then in, then in Genesis 12, God says that through Abraham, he's going to reestablish the unity of the human family. This is what the meaning of Catholic is all about. Reestablish the, the, the unity of the human family through Abraham's seed. That's why... Um, that's why uh, when you get to the, the New Testament, Jesus is, and Paul's mission and all the others are to the Gentiles because this, the Messiah has come, Abraham's seed has come. And therefore, the, the way you are saved is coming into the unit, into the Abrahamic family in which there is peace between humans. Outside of the human family, the nations still rage. Inside of the, the, the Abrahamic family, the Catholic church, that the dividing wall of hostility, Paul says in Ephesians 1 or Ephesians 2 at the beginning, has been broken down. And so that's why the peace that he proclaims in Ephesians is not a peace like um, uh, in Ephesians, at least, not just a peace of sins, like your sins have been forgiven, you're at peace. It's a peace between it's a peace between um, Jews and Gentiles. That That's the peace that he's talking about there. Um Anyways, I could I I could go I could go on. In fact, Ephesians goes so far as to say that the gospel is this is what the gospel is all about. He says this. Listen to Paul's prayer here. He says, "For this reason, this is Ephesians 1:15 if anybody wants to follow. For this reason I have because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, the it's all over, and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in all of us who believe, according to the working of his great uh, his great might, which he accomplished in Christ when he raised him from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in the heavenly places. See, that's key. Lord, resurrection oriented to the ascension, sitting at God's right hand, all authority on earth has been given to him. And he says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. See, not only in this age. So all authority has been given to him now, and then fully when the age has come to an end and he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body. Now in chapter two, he goes on to say, for this reason, check this, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you would have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. It's like, Okay, Paul's taking the gloves off. He's going to tell us what the mystery is from all eternity. Watch this. When you read this, uh, which was um, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written. When you um, read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. You're like, what is it? What is it? Tell us, tell us. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations that is, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Okay, you're like, all right, tell us what is the greatest mystery from all eternity, you know, that 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 has now been revealed to you. Tell us. And he says, that is, here's the mystery, how the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. 
Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? I thought you were going to talk about like the glories of the beatific vision. I thought you were going to say like, when your intellect sees God fully, you're going to, you know, Paul says, here's the mystery, how the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. What? What are you talking about, Paul? And partakers of the promises of Christ, Jesus through the gospel of this gospel. I was made a minister according to the gift, a minister to who Remember, Cause he said Gentiles. It's like, what in the world is the gospel? But Paul is thinking of what? The, the answer to sin was Genesis 12, one through three, that the unity of the nations would come through the, the Abraham's family, the messianic seed, which is Jesus and the church. So Paul believes through the church, this is why he says of this gospel, which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden from all ages in God. What is the plan of the hit of the, uh, the, the, what is the mystery hidden from all ages in God who created all things that through the church, the manifold w uh, wisdom of God might be made known to the principalities, to the powers in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose, which he realized in Jesus Christ, our curios. Jesus is Lord. That's what the church sends the signal flare to Satan and the dark, the dark Lord and the dark powers, all the serpent species and the seeds, his puppet kingdoms throughout the world, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the father and all nations are subject to him. All authority has been given to him. And the reason why the Gentiles are key in all this is because the Gentiles are the signal flare that the new Abrahamic family, the new kingdom of God has been established in and through the church. So the very fact that the Gentiles are in the church is the sign that God has that God has brought forth a new humanity. That new humanity has, has been telling the world that there's a new creation and with a new creation, a new Lord who sits at the right hand of the father. That's how the story works. Beautiful. And, and you know, uh, uh, James Martin, father, James Martin, um, he, <laughs> what does he, he have to say, Chris? <laughs> so I don't know if you remember this. I wasn't even on Twitter, uh, at this point, this is a couple years back and him and father, um, Petrie, uh, Petrie, what's his name? Is it Dominican? Petri, Thomas oh, Petri. Petri. Yeah. Thomas Petri. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking of Brant Petrie. But they got in a dispute over the 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 issue with. Remember when the woman comes to Jesus, and uh, she's like, "Hey, can you heal my daughter?" And Jesus kind of gives oh, us no. like, "Oh no, you mean you mean you mean when Martin said the? <laughs> do you remember? Is that when uh, Martin said that our Lord was sort of enlightened by this Gentile, so that he would? Yeah, he implied that he didn't really understand or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So so um. So yeah, why don't do you remember it? Do you want to break it down? Oh, or or I could break it down. It, uh, I don't. I never really followed the yeah. dispute. I don't think I was on Twitter at that point, but I remember hearing about him saying that. Yeah. So I so he went to that passage in. I don't know if he was reading from Matthew or Mark's or whatever, but you know this Canaanite woman comes to Jesus, and it's insanely awkward because let me just read it. It says, and Jesus went away from there and, and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and cried, have mercy on me. O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely possessed by a demon. And Jesus did not answer her a word. It's like the first moment of a dark night of the soul. You're like praying and Jesus doesn't answer anything. Um, and his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying after us. He answered. Now this is interesting. He answered, 
I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay. And this is the point in which Martin, Martin sort of says like, like, see, he only thinks his mission is to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she then helps him realize, oh, I'm supposed to be reaching out to other people, you know, and Jesus, Jesus gets his first catechesis lesson, supposedly. <laughs> but, but the problem is, the problem is to, this is what you do. You assume the faith of the church. Okay. You say, no, no, Jesus did not learn it from her. He had, he knew what was going on because he's divine, but this is still an awkward passage. Okay. So you have the faith of the church. Then you take that faith and you look into the scriptures with that faith and you allow the text to be illuminated. Now, Jesus says he's not, he was, he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So who are the lost sheep of the house of Israel? The 10 North, the 10 North. The, right ten, the 10 Northern tribes, right? So, and where were they last seen? You know, if you lose your wallet, wh- when you look for it, you're like, where would I, where did I last see it? Well, where was the, the where were the 10 tribes, the last, the, the lost tribes orig- uh, seen last? Well, in the North near Tyre and Sidon. And so Jesus is going there to tell them that he's, he's there for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But here's the problem though. Where are they? This is the major issue that is that the major issue for 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 Jesus cuz when the Messiah was supposed to come, create the new humanity, launch the new creation, become the new king, one of the things that he was going to do is unite the 12 tribes. But here's the problem, when you get to the 1st century, it's like Jesus, I know you're supposed to unite the 12 tribes, except there's one problem. We have no idea where they are. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. it's been centuries, but we do know where they are. Where are they? Where Samaria. did the, well, yes. And what did they end up doing? They intermingled. They may, yeah, the syncretism. That's right. They intermingled right. with the Gentiles. And so if you're going to unite, this is God's brilliant plan. If you're going to unite the 12, the 12 tribes and find the lost sheep of the house of Israel, what do you have to do? Convert the Gentile nations. That's the key that Jesus is trying to teach her. And he's not really trying to teach her per se. He's trying to teach his disciples, which is why his disciples then go to the nations because he was teaching them about his mission to unite the 12 tribes by looking, because he's posing a question. He's like, hey, I'm supposed to come to unite the 12, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And Matt, and, and the, sorry, not Matthew, but Peter sort of looks around. He's like, am I the only one that's like, nobody knows where they are? But Jesus wants to get them thinking. Okay. Now, this Canaanite woman, has confessed that Jesus is Lord and has confessed that he's son of David, okay? So whether or not she has Israelite blood in her, in the Gentile nations, you have people confessing that Jesus is the Messiah, okay? So he's sort of saying to them that the way you unite the 12 tribes is to go to the Gentiles, okay? And so that's what's going on in this passage. Not that Jesus had to learn the Canaanite. If you go into it with the church is wrong, the, the 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 church is wrong and Jesus and this is a, just too hard of a passage for me. Then you, you end up committing heresy. But if you say no, the church is right. Jesus is divine. I'm going to look in this passage with the eyes of faith, with the church's tradition, and try to understand it. But I'm not going to give in to this idea that Jesus had to learn it, learn his mission from somebody else. And what God will do is allow the 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 text to illuminate it. The, the, uh, it will be illuminated for us through the church's tradition by scripture and tradition and the light of faith. So all that is to say is to 
highlight that this was Jesus's mission to unite the 12 tribes by bringing in the Gentiles, by creating a one worldwide family called the Catholic church. That's the meaning of Catholic is the gospel. And in doing so, establishing God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. Boom. There it is. I want to recommend anybody who, I don't have it by me, but anybody who finds difficult passages in the scriptures, you need to go to the faith of church. I guarantee you, like, like Chris is saying, the, the, the saints have been dealing with these questions for 2000 years. And so there's, there's no need to go to James Martin who thinks he's so smart with a bunch of degrees and whatnot. Uh, I mean, he, the, the other controversy that he went into, which I, I talk about this, I recommend this is, um, going into the scriptures, my book introduction to the Holy Bible for traditional Catholics. We talk all about why this is such an issue when we're looking at the scriptures and people just think that they can get a degree and then they'll understand the scriptures. And that's not the case. And unfortunately it's, it's usually the opposite. You, you more, more misunderstand the scriptures if you get a degree, which is, this is terrible to say, but um, I wanted to bring it to Pentecost because that that's what really brings this home is when Pentecost happens and they're preaching in every language. And again, that that's what struck me so much about the when I was converting to Rome is what struck me so much is that Pentecost, the the very essence of the gospel is preached in every language. And there is uh, there is there's sort of there is a language of the church in terms of Latin, like Latin's language of the church. But it's in another way, it's not the language of the church because it's not the language of the, the gospel is preached in every language so that there is always another sort of nuance of these different things. And that's what you see in church history throughout all these divisions is that they're breaking upon these linguistic lines. And then the Greeks split from us because they refuse to allow the Latin tradition to say filioque in the creed and the Greek tradition to say that the Holy Spirit proceeds in a different manner through their Greek terminology. And they refuse to allow two different terminologies in two different languages to mean the same thing. And that's what allows Rome to be a universal kingdom is because we allow the substance of the doctrine to be preached in every language as long as it is the same substance. So the Chaldean church comes in, they're the Persian church. They've been separated for since 431. They come in in 1555 or whatever. They've got their Chaldean language. They've got their different doctrine. So the church says, church does not say you have to convert and use Latin language and you only use Latin terms for your doctrine. It says, no, it says you, okay, what's your Chaldean? What do you mean by that? What, what does that mean? What's the substance of all the meaning of your Chaldean doctrine? And it examines it at the substantial level, not just the accidental level. And that's what makes these other Protestants or Orthodox fail to be united in one church with Catholics because only the Catholic church is able to have that truly Pentecostal in the true sense, Pentecost, multiple languages, only the Catholic Church is able to have those multiple languages and multiple doctrinal formulations, but not multiple doctrines. One doctrine, but multiple formulations through different languages. So how does that how does that connect with Pentecost? What do you think, Chris? Well, I think Pentecost is really key because Pentecost then, now that the church has been established, the Holy Spirit is the one who then alive, who then um brings us to life and then and then gives us the power to witness to the nations that's key so so here here's 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 the thing so jesus is 
kingdom has been established. The, the king has been enthroned, but once he's enthroned, he doesn't send us like, okay, now let's go take back the world. So here's a bunch of AR-15s. Um, here's a bunch of tanks. Here's a bunch of swords. I mean, they didn't have that back then. So, okay, daggers. Here's, you know, here's a couple karate lessons or whatever, Krav Maga lessons. Go get them, guys. Go get them. No. What, what Paul thinks happened and what the New Testament presents to us is that the Holy Spirit allows us to go and testify to the nations to say, Jesus Kyrios, to go tell the nations that they are subject to Christ. So this, so this is a public gospel. And I, I have to add this because I, I've heard some Catholics even talk about the natural law gospel, that when you go in the public square, you're supposed to argue merely on what is common to all men. And therefore you just argue from the natural law, the natural law gospel, I guess, whatever. That was weird when I heard that. But like, but but there is this tendency to go into the public square and tell the nations that the church knows how to argue from the natural law, baby. And you're like, uh, the natural, I mean, it's, it's really obvious that marriage is between one man and one woman. It's super obvious. You don't need a degree in Aristotle to figure out that abortion is murder. I don't know if this is going to get kicked off YouTube or not for saying all this, but, but you don't need like a degree. I mean, it's obvious. The problem is that the dark Lord has blinded as the new Testament says the, the people of this age. And so what is needed is not more of the natural law, although the natural law is important and we need arguments from the natural law. That's really key because many people come to their senses with it, but we need the gospel and the Holy spirit. These people need to be baptized in order to come to uh, a, an understanding of the natural law. Grace builds on nature, but it also what perfects it. And so it, it it's going to help people. And so in the public square, we shouldn't just go out there with the natural law. We should go out there with what the first Catholics were equipped with, which is Jesus is king and through the church, he's established. Um, the, you have the fulfillment of not just the natural law, but the fulfillment of all of history. Um, and so Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit allows us to go into the public, public square, to go out to the nations, to our friends and family and to our political leaders and con confess Jesus as Lord and say, hey, we're subject to, to Christ through the church. So, um, what do you, so what do you think? Do you do do Catholics need to convert the United States or any country to add an amendment to the Constitution that says Christ is Lord? Yes, I think so. Oh, man. I, I I know I know this, but like I do agree with like Tim Gordon's point, which is that it's best if like subsidiarity is key, right? Because because we want like you know. We we want like an, a constitutional amendment, like in in the California Constitution, you know. First, oh, we yeah. we want we want it, you know, like the original uh, Northern Constitution for California. In this Third Amendment, was the Catholic Church was the official church. the 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 first Constitution in California, sorry, the first Constitution in California in the Article Two said the official religion of California is the Holy Roman Catholic Church, without when, molestation to any others. When it became a state of United States? No, 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 no. It was prior oh, in, to that. In New Spain. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, in New Spain. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Or so, in Mexico, I guess it it was. It was, It would have been Mexico, Mexico, but, the, Mexico but Northern time. California had broken off. But like, oh, okay. But the the idea though is that, and this is what the the Cristeros movement was all about. 
Um, it wasn't merely about, uh, Archbishop Gomez just blurbed a new book out that, that talks about this. It wasn't merely just about defending uh, Catholic right, the, the right to practice our faith. The Catholics wanted the, the constitution changed back to what it was before, which had the, the, the Catholic faith, the Catholic church is the official religion of Mexico. And so they wanted it put back and they didn't want it. So that was a big part of the problem that a lot of Catholics uh, might not know about the Cristeros movement. That's why it was called long live what? Christ the King. Christo, right. It wasn't like long live religious liberty because they were fighting for something. And it wasn't just their right to practice the Catholic faith. It's the right that Christ has to be the king over Mexico. Yeah, I, I thought I was thinking, I think earlier today about the conversion of all the nations in the whole church history. It always started with a ruler like St. Patrick in Ireland. He converted these Druid rulers and then they, so you convert the ruler and his court, they all get baptized. So does he go out with an army and force everyone to go to mass? No, he sends out preachers who yes. then convert everybody freely and they all, that's how you create a Christian culture, which, because everybody, I mean, I, I hear some Catholics who are very, uh, lib, you know, liberal type and not, not liberal in the sense, I mean, um, John Locke liberal types who are, or thinking that all Catholic history was simply converting with the sword. Everybody, this is not how this works. It, you convert the ruler and then the ruler promotes the church. The ruler yeah. sends out preachers. He, he establishes churches. He, you know, people are preaching and nobody is forced to go to mass unless it's an abuse. Like we talked about Charlemagne did. I mean, and rulers did do that. They tried to use it. But the, the, the standard is you establish the church, you promote the church. You would you would officially tolerate people I and mean, you would root out certain things. But I mean, yeah, the, like, it, it, you know, if, if we converted the United States, we got the amendment, the the you know, the there would be certain limits to religious liberty like. You know, certain religions would not be allowed, like Satanism or whatever, or Mohammedanism or whatever. But, you know, the Jews have always been a protected minority in Christendom. They've been allowed to do their religion as long as they do not cause a revolution in, in Christendom, in Christ, in the, the Christian polity. As long as they don't mess with the whole social order, they're allowed to continue. And that's kind of the, the standard of allowing Protestants, you know, just for the sake of peace, we're not going to force anybody to, you know, get out. And Spain is different as a whole different issue, however, but there is a certain amount of toleration for the sake of peace, as long as they do not corrupt the entire social fabric of Christ the King. Uh, what do you yeah. think about that? No, I, I agree the, the, to your very first thing you were saying. At the end of the day, God doesn't want constitutions. He wants hearts. And the only constitutions are just sort of the, the thing you get once you have the conversion of the barbarians, you have the conversion of the West through the saints and through missionary preachers and, and through the church doing the thing that she's doing, which is, see, this, this is the key. This is really key. The church has a power to bring all nations under Christ. What is that power? Now, whether or not you understand it or not, it's an actual power that Paul and the apostles believe they had and that this is it. When they tell the nations that Jesus is Lord, it's, it's like a, a, like a nuclear blast or it, it's like a gunshot. It affects something. Something comes out of their preaching and that preaching is the Holy Spirit. 
Okay, so so this is really key. They're like, well, how is that? How if we don't have any power, how are we supposed to convert the nations? Because by by testifying to Christ, you uncage the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's released, and it converts the nation. So the 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 the, the Paul and Peter didn't go there and say convert or die. You know, they went there and they knew this is why Paul wanted to be killed because Paul wanted to go to Rome to be murdered on account. You you hear this from him. You're like, what, what's up with this? Because he believed that when that happened, you would, you, it would be like, it would be like pulling the pin in a grenade that as soon as Rome killed, took his head off and killed Peter, that was their death with de death wish because it would unleash a power, the power of the Holy Spirit, which would eventually bring down Rome and and establish Christ as king. And then you get, you see this in the Latin mass where you have all this sort of this proclamation that Christ is king and no longer the emperor. So that's where Catholics need to keep in mind. By dying to yourself and, and, and coming under Christ's law, but also telling the nations and saying it publicly and, you know, on all that stuff, and then maybe even eventually dying for it, that's the power. The power then is unleashed, the power of love. And um, because the world is in love with power, when Catholics believe that there's that in the power of love, that laying down your life for your enemy, like Jesus did, and we see it in the book of Revelation, is what brings the nations to repentance. Unlike Pharaoh, who didn't, it's by now laying down their lives for the sake of testifying to Christ, being a witness, a martyr, it, for the sake of their enemies that they then have part of their enemies converting. Not everybody in the book of Revelation converts, but it's only after the martyrs lay down their lives that then some of the people of the nations convert. Um, and so we have to remember that the way we convert the nations is by laying down our lives for our enemies and dying for them and dying in the faith, proclaiming Christ as King. That's the power that we have. Other than that, we don't have, we don't have guns and we don't have missiles and we don't have all that stuff. We don't even rhetoric. Paul's like, I don't care. I can't, you know, even rhetoric is not a power. The power yeah, is being with the power. Yeah, exactly. Being if they yeah. mock us, that's the power. If they crucify us, that's the power. And he got all this supposedly, he says, from the cross. Given what happened on three days after the cross, he believes that if you enter into, if you go up that hill with Christ, then it's going to unleash a power that will convert the nations and establish the social kingship of Christ. Absolutely. That's beautiful. That's I love what St. Paul says. I didn't, I didn't come with, with wise words. I came with power. That's great. Do you, yeah. any, any other final words before we go to questions, Chris, you want to, um, no, I think we can okay. go there. That's cool. Fine. Okay. So Teresa earlier on said, didn't Jesus reject military rule? So Chris is definitely saying that this is a real political mm -hmm. reality. It's not just a spiritual whatever. It's really, you know, Christendom, uh, Roman Empire becoming Christian and all that. So, Chris, what do you say to that? If you're saying that, yes, there should be a confessional state, didn't Jesus reject military rule? I love this question. Okay. I'm actually, I just got into a doctorate program and my doctorate is on precisely this question. Um uh, the 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 thesis that I'm working on is that Christ himself established the church as a military. Um, and there's more I could say on that. It's a whole nother show. But let me just say this. Um, uh, he didn't reject a military rule. And what 
let, let me actually make your question and the objection to us actually sound better than, or actually sound like really tough to answer, which is when we get to the new Testament, when we go to the old Testament, all the prophecies concerning the Messiah, go, go read Daniel, go, go read Isaiah. It's all about this like military figure that's supposed to come. And all of a sudden Jesus comes and he's, he's not like, he, he appoints 12 apostles and everybody in the back of their minds, like, okay, He's going to appoint them and he's going to take them off to the desert like Qumran. He's going to train them just, you know, and then, and then he's going to do the Maccabee thing. He's going to come back and take, but Jesus instead doesn't do that. And so the question is, does Jesus reject this element of the messianic prophecies? The answer that I'm trying to, I'm trying to, most will say yes. And I'm trying to say, no, the problem that go back with Paul and with Jesus, allow them to take you by the hand and go back to the very first gospel, the very first messianic prophecy, which is what? Not Daniel 7, Genesis 3.15. The ultimate enemy to be defeated is death itself. It's Satan. It's sin. Okay. And so Satan is, like I said, like I said at the very beginning, if you don't understand the problem, the plight of Israel or the problem, then you can't understand the solution. The problem is Satan and Satan's reign and sin is just an allegiance to Satan. And so what we, what God has to ultimately do is dethrone the dark Lord. And so the military mission doesn't go off to the side. If anything, the reason why people think it goes off to the side is because Christ has heightened it. He's not going after Rome. He's going after the dark powers behind the dark powers. Remember, Rome and Babylon and Egypt and Assyria and whoever um, are just puppets of the dark Lord. And so what he needs to do, remember, Paul says this in Ephesians, our fight is not against flesh and blood. Why? Because everybody thought it was against flesh and blood. Our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Therefore, Ephesians 6, 6 through 9 it, which is put on the faith. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. You know, the only sword you have is this thing right here. This is the sword. Morse, right here. Morse pedivam vita per mariam. Death through Eve, life through Mary. The only way you fight is with the, with the sword, with the sword of the word of God and the spirit of God, which he says is the word. So, so the point is, is Christ is a military Messiah, but when he steps onto the scene, what we see, Teresa, is he doesn't battle Rome. He doesn't even go after Herod. Where does he, where does he go? He goes to the desert. Why does he go to the desert? To go fight who? Not Caesar, but the dark Lord himself. See, this is key. Then when, and part of my, part of my uh, thesis, proving my thesis when I get to the New Testament section is that when Jesus goes and heals and he goes and forgives and he goes and cleanses the leopards and he raises the dead, what is he doing? Is he just, is he, Thomas said that all, Thomas Aquinas said that all miracles are signs. They point beyond themselves. They're not just cool things that you're like, oh my gosh, Jesus rose, raised this dude from the dead. And so therefore he has the power of raising people from the dead. And therefore he is God. Well, we have prophets from the old Testament who raised people from the, so it's not like these, these miracles necessarily established Jesus as, as, although he did more miracles than all the prophets in the past, because he had to, he had to show everybody that was God. But the point is, is why is Jesus raising the dead and curing the sick? Cause he's, he's battling Satan and, and the sickness and the death and the disease are all works of the dark Lord. This is why Paul says Christ is a, Christ is cleansing the leper 
and he's healing and he's healing the blind and, and healing the deaf. But ultimately the last enemy to be defeated is who death. That's what Paul says. And so the resurrection is sort of the final blow against Satan's kingdom because all of the works of Satan's kingdom, disease, death, sickness have been destroyed by Jesus himself in the resurrection. So everything Jesus is doing is, is completely militaristic. He is fighting Satan. He's fighting Satan. He's not fighting. In fact, before we had things like the atonement theory after Anselm, the only, the only point in, in Christianity in Catholicism in which we have a universal consensus of the, the atonement theory is the church fathers. Um, uh, in the father's will by father Lombardo, uh, published with Oxford university press, the book's like 130 bucks, but you have to save up to get it. But he shows the universal consensus among the church fathers is what happened on the cross was a cosmic battle. It was a battle between Satan and between Jesus and the resurrection was the defeat of Satan and, 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 and Saturday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday is really key and Saturday's key too. Um, but but what happened in the Paschal mystery is the defeat of Satan. That's why the ascension is key because after he defeats Satan on the cross, he then thrones to, to the ruler over, over the world. And so it's all military. It's just, you have to have put on the supernatural vision to kind of get it, but don't reject. He doesn't reject it. He heightens it. He goes after the dark powers behind the dark powers. Yeah. I, I love, I love what you're saying because it, it really unites the spiritual and the political into one there's no distinction and i i love what you're saying because he is going after rome uh, and babylon and all these political entities but he's going through their he's going after their boss going after their lord that's behind them exactly that's exactly how that's how he takes out rome and i love that because because rome does convert and these nations do convert they do become christian states because christ comes against their Lord that's behind. I love what you're, what you're, could I just, could I, ahead. yeah. Could I just close with one thing? There's only one. So if we want to ask the question, why did Jesus come to the earth? Why did he, why the incarnation? Why the Paschal mystery? There are many places and you can gather a conclusion, but there's only one place in which it's just basically said, this is the reason why he came. And it's in first oh, yeah. John chapter three. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Eight. He said, the reason this is John, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's the key. So, so what, what he's doing was he's, it doesn't say to destroy the works of Caesar. It's to destroy the works of the devil who's behind these political regimes and oppression and injustices and so on. And so Jesus is coming to, to establish his kingdom by fighting the dark Lord, oppression, you know, um, uh, injustices and so on and so forth. That's beautiful. Yeah, we're going to wrap up in like five minutes. I want to get a few more questions because this one's a really good one from C.F. Hulling. Yeah. Are, you, are you then advocating Pope Francis's call to accept a one world government under the UN? Well, here's the king. I mean, here's the here's the king. Here's the king. Um, you almost don't want to say it on YouTube because then our enemies are going to like figure it out. But the UN is trying to establish like, you know, a one world government, I guess, and so on and so forth. And the, the thing is, is we are too. <laughs> Catholics are too trying to establish it. Yeah, we're imperialists. <laughs> right, we're, we're trying to establish the one worldwide government of Christ the King. But here's, here's the thing. According, if you take the ancient oracles seriously, the only way that the one wor a one worldwide government will come about is through Abraham's family. 
That's the key. Um, Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. The only way the one world government will come is through Genesis chapter, or sorry, through Abraham's seed. And that seed is Jesus Christ who has established the Catholic church. So the only way that if people want peace among nations and they want this one worldwide peace and yada, 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 and, and government or whatever, the only way is by not us going to the UN, it's by the UN and the nations coming to the church. Right. Yeah. That, that And that's what uh, Pius XI says in Quas Primas about Christ the King. He says, there is no other way to establish except through Jesus Christ. So what yeah. do you, and you made a passing remark about Vatican II, what do you see? Because Paul VI takes off his tiara, he blesses the UN, he says, this is the, quote, obligatory path forward for world peace, end quote. A, 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 a secular organization that does not confess the true Lord. What do you, how do you understand this, this uh, post-conciliar experiment in the UN? I, I, here's the key. Our, our enemy is Satan. Okay. That was our original vocation, which was to fight the dark Lord. The, the, the division among humans is a major roadblock to fighting Satan. Because if we're fighting ourselves, then we're not doing the thing that we are supposed to do, which is protect God's presence in the land and keep evil out. When the popes go to the UN and advocate for uh, uh, a, a fraternity, a sort of like we're all one family, I, I, I like that. I like that. I actually think that, yes, we need to go back to – because the key the, – hold on. If I can step back for a second and get in Paul's mind real quick, this might be take, we're going to take a long route there, but I'll show you. What was the plight of Israel that Paul struggled with? Why, once Paul saw uh, Jesus, or Jesus on the road to Damascus, what was the issue that he had to figure out? The issue was that sin wasn't just in, it wasn't just in the Canaanites. It was also in who? The Israelites. Okay. And what, what he advocates for when he goes to the nations, when he goes to the Jews, he says that we're all one family. We're all one family in Adam. Okay. So, so he's, he, the, the Jewish scriptures always advocated for the fact that we are all part of one family. Okay. So it's not a conspiracy for the, the scriptures to be saying we're all part of one family. The point though, is then Paul's later statements where he says that now that we have been, we, we were all in the one Adam. Now we're all in the new Adam, which is Christ. And so I don't mind if the popes want to go there and say, member, we're not of different, we're not of different species and stuff like that. We're all of one family. That's fine. But the next point that the popes need to make is the fact that there is a new family in the new Adam and the way to get through there is not by re-entering into your mother's womb, as Jesus tells Nicodemus. It's through the waters of baptism, not through the waters of, of your mom, mother. It's through the waters of mother church. And so I'm cool with advocating for the, the Old Testament scriptures, this fact, which needs to be assumed here, that we're all part of one family. We're all in the one Adam. Because if we're not all in the one Adam, then there could be a case that not all need to be in the old, the new Christ, the new or the, the Christ, the new Adam. So I like that. But as long as the popes and I don't know what they've said, I haven't read all of their the the UN stuff. That's fine. But they need to then say 
now that you've all are in the new Adam or the old Adam, you need to be in the new Christ. And so that's where an opportunity say, if you guys really want to be united, there's only one union that the creator God has established. And that's through Abraham's seed, Genesis 12, one through three, having been fulfilled in Matthew chapter one, Jesus Christ and his church. Absolutely. So, So that's the key. Excellent. Okay, great. <laughs> Chris, there's so much more we could talk about. I, I I have multiple further future shows in my brain from talking to you. There's so much more to talk about here. Uh so so you're you're doing um you're doing your dissertation about the militarism of, of Christ and the militarism of the kingdom of God. Um and then you have a book coming out. Can you tell us about yeah. your book? So, so this whole thesis is, you know, that I've been sort of saying in this whole stream for an hour and a half now, there's a lot of points that need to be argued on sort of like the exegetical level. And so what I've decided to do is basically write a biblical theology of the entire scriptures. And so I'm going book by book. And so this first book that I've published took me about a year and a half to write is called Kingdom by Creation. And so the you've heard many points already talked. I've, I've, I've mentioned some of the points here, but there's a lot more that could be said. Um, um, and so it's what I've done in this book, kingdom by creation is show that in God creating the universe, his idea was to establish his kingdom on, on earth as in heaven. And so I've tried to show how Genesis is sort of anticipating the fulfillment of this kingdom after the fall established at the fall and then and then eventually anticipating it in Christ after the fall. So it's called Kingdom by Creation, a biblical theology of the uh of of Genesis. My dissertation is going to be on my research is just basically going to be a, a biblical theology of the church militant. So I'm going to try to recover this idea because when we get to like monasticism, we see that monasticism is is really founded on, I have a popular book that that should be coming out in, sev- in several months called The Church Militant Option. And it argues that the Benedictines, like the Benedict Option, the, Bene- the Benedictines, beginning with Benedict and going back to the, the Desert Fathers, they, they weren't doing anything other than fighting Satan. Uh, I mean, th- this is just if you close to the primary sources. Front they, line. They, 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 yeah, that's right. And Satan, it wasn't like they were leaving the cities to go to the desert where Satan wasn't because the cities like Sodom and Gomorrah's were, <laughs> no, it was, they were going so that they could fight. And, and actually uh, uh, they're going to establish God's kingdom out in the desert, which is home turf for Satan. And so like California, you know, which is a desert. So, uh, so, so, so they're going to the desert to go fight Satan. And, and then this gets picked up and, and, and sort of taken up and into the founding of monasticism and Benedict's rule and so on and so forth. But what I want to do is sort of show how the monastics were, weren't getting this from like even origins and in a spiritual interpretation of, of the, the Old and New Testament. They're getting this from Jesus himself who saw that, that he, he himself was fighting Satan and not Caesar and so on and so forth. Sort of the stuff, the stuff that I've been saying here, but, um, but the key that I haven't talked about here, and I think it's going to be the huge thing is the liturgy, the liturgy. So the full title of my dissertation and which will eventually be a book is called King Jesus and his liturgical military. And then the the, su- the subtitle is a biblical theology of the church militant because the last key. So once you get the kingdom stuff with Jesus as king, the royal dimension, then you have to get the church as a military, which begins with the vocation of, 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 um, 
uh, Adam and Eve as sort of these 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 forces that are supposed to garden or gone the garden, which is God's presence to protect it. So they have this martial vocation, not just a marital, but a martial vocation. But they do that through the seventh day, which is liturgy. And this is why you see the Ark of the Covenant and you see the temple as a military weapon. The Ark, I mean, the tent of meeting is literally just a, a, a weapon of war. Uh, it's it's God's presence being marched in. The book of Numbers is an entire, it's just a description of, of Israel as a military. Yeah. And so this is picked up and moved into the New Testament, um, especially in the book of Revelation. But my, I'm trying to make the case that it's everywhere in the New Testament. And the way the church fights is through the liturgy, actually. So that's what I'm trying to, the, the what is the liturgy at its essence? It's the first Passover. And what was the first Passover? The destruction of the seed of the, of, of, um, the seed of the uh, Pharaoh and the new Passover is just another military weapon. The, the, the mass is another military weapon to defeat and dethrone the dark Lord. And this is why in the, in the TLM, you have all these elements to the enthroning of Christ to the King um, and stuff like that. So I try to te- I'm going to try to tease all that out, but I have a lot of way. I just, I'm, I just got into my program and now I'm spending, I'm going to spend the next years of my life. That's why I'm off Twitter because I have to spend all my time just studying this. And oh, man. Well, I, I can't wait for your stuff. We're going to talk more. This is going to be great. And Chris will also have an, an article at Meaning of Catholic that's going to break down some of this stuff, too. Uh, yeah. So stay tuned for that. So, Chris, so thanks so much for having uh, for coming on the show. This is awesome. I love talking with you. I love breaking into the scriptures with you. We don't do that enough on, on this show. So, um I wanted to say, so so today and tomorrow and Wednesday are Rogation Tide. You can go to the link below the show notes. There's a link to the Litany of the Saints that's traditionally prayed during this time up to the Ascension, which as we've been talking about is the Ascension of our Lord to his throne. So tomorrow we're going to have Catholic Social History Part 4, which is going to go from 1776 to present. Wednesday night we're going to talk Mary and Manhood with Kennedy. Again, you can buy Kennedy's book, Terror of Demons, Reclaiming Traditional Catholic Masculinity. Talk with Kennedy about Mary's. We're still in the month of May, still Mary's month. We're going to do a Mary show. Uh, And then Friday, really excited for Friday, we're going to have Matt Gaspers talking about Our Lady of Fatima and the conversion of the Mohammedans. So that's going to be a real great show. We'll talk prophecies and future stuff, all that good stuff. So Um, could I... Can oh, I plug something real quick? All right, please. So I'm uh, I'm going through uh, a Genesis Bible study right now. Um, so if you, I don't have no idea how you're going to reach out to me, but you can find, I don't know, Facebook me or or maybe Timothy. Get in touch with Timothy and he can yeah. give you my email address. But I do Bible studies like twice a week. And so if anybody's interested, and we go into this stuff in depth. Um, and so if anybody wants to join a Bible study, is interested more in this, this, then they can contact me through you or Facebook or whatever. And, um, and they can join the Bible study. We have about 20 people roughly, maybe awesome. give or take right now that are going through. So yeah. Sweet. Excellent. That's awesome. Cool. All right. Well, let's pray the, our father, let's pray, uh, thy kingdom come. That's so right. Let's pray for this true kingdom, the true King Christ is Lord. Christ is King over the earth, over all nations. And we pray that his kingdom may be established in the United States, in any other country, every country, and every nation. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy, Holy Spirit. Ghost. Amen. Amen.